0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Up until the 1990s, the section of the rock universe known as Alternative was really all over the place. There wasn't what anyone could call a defining sound. If it was left of center, weird to the mainstream music fan, and ignored by the media, then it was, by default, Alternative. If you were around in the late 1980s, the decade where the word alternative began to be used to describe a certain attitude in rock, you'll remember that this was an umbrella term for so many different types of artists. If you couldn't categorize a song or an artist by tossing it into any of the regular buckets, then there was only one other bucket you could use, and it quickly filled up. Singer-songwriters, indie pop artists, industrial bands... Groups with synthesizers, goth groups, extra noisy guitar bands, even rap was alternative for a while in the 80s. It was new, it was weird, it was hated by the mainstream, ergo, it was alternative. There were so many different sounds and textures and moods and looks that just trying to come up with a definition of whatever alternative music was was impossible. Basically, we went by the credo of, I can't tell exactly what it is, but I know when I hear it. Come to think of it, in many ways back then was a lot like alt-rock today. A vast variety of sounds that were adventurous, different, and sometimes, yeah, weird. But then along came something that sort of codified everything. Something around which everything else could coalesce and organize. And once that happened, alt-rock was unstoppable. For a while, anyway. This is part three of our look back on the 1990s. This is the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this is our third installment of a multi-episode look back on the alt-rock of the 1990s. And if you haven't already guessed from that preamble, this show is all about grunge. Grunge was not only the most familiar sound of the alt-rock explosion of the 90s, but also the genre around which everything revolved for years afterwards. Alternative moved from being a sea of different sounds to one that centered on low-tuned guitars and anti-star front men and women. And grunge was not only Generation X's favorite music, but the gateway drug into so many other forms of alt rock. It led to the punk revival of the middle 1990s, giving us Green Day and The Offspring. Some were led into the more aggressive sounds of hardcore and industrial. Goth music experienced an uptick, and so on. Even though its peak lasted for just a couple of years, grunge was so popular and so influential, it's like it's never really gone away. The bands who still survive from that time may have distanced themselves from the G-word long ago, but there's no arguing that grunge changed rock forever. Now, before we get too analytical about it... We should review where all this came from. Like punk, grunge was reactionary. It was a stripping back of all the artifice and goop that had become attached to rock through the 1980s. Things like costuming and makeup and how you looked at that music video that played on MTV. Rich rock stars with cars and chicks and private jets and mansions in the south of France playing the same old classic rock songs to baby boomers who didn't want to grow up. That didn't cut it anymore. Meanwhile, pop music at the end of the 1980s was absolutely terrible. You know, new kids on the block, Debbie Gibson, Tiffany. If you were part of Generation X, the children of the Baby Boomers, it was a pretty dire time to be a rock fan. But something was happening amongst a small group of musicians and fans in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Here, Beavis and Butthead, Rock from Black Sabbath, Kiss and Led Zeppelin, mix freely with hardcore punk that came up the coast from California, bands like the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and Bad Religion. Mix in rainy weather, lots of coffee, a variety of drugs, a ton of universities, and the fact that the area wasn't included on the itineraries of a lot of major tours, and you end up with a Petri dish. All these influences that were allowed to develop unmolested. Grunge wasn't just a type of music. It was a culture with its own rules and goals and politics. It had its own aesthetic and philosophy and fashion sense. And over time, it even evolved its own class system. And it all started with just a few players, maybe a couple of dozen. In the early years, this would be the middle 1980s, it featured bands like the Melvins, Malfunction, and Green River, then along came a small, perpetually broke, independent record label called Sub Pop, which released songs from local bands like this. Touch me, That's Mud Honey with an early grunge classic, Touch Me, I'm Sick, from early 1988. It was rough, it was raw, and definitely uncommercial. But it wouldn't always be that way. Another local band called Mother Love Bone wanted to be successful. They wanted to be rock and roll stars. They wanted a major label deal. And they got it. Mother Love Bone nailed a deal with Mercury Records, and it looked as if they would be one of the biggest and most popular bands to come out of the Pacific Northwest in years. That debut record was called Apple. Mother Love Bone with Stargazer, really good band, and they probably would have been big stars. But just before that album was released, their singer, Andrew Wood, overdosed on heroin, suffered a massive cerebral hemorrhage, and died. However, his death set a number of things in motion which were crucial for this scene to coalesce into something bigger. Some of his friends came together to record a tribute album. This included Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron, both from a local band called Soundgarden. Jeff Almond and Stone Gossard, a couple of ex-members of Mother Love Bone. A buddy named Jeff McCready and a new kid in town named Eddie Vetter. They call this project Temple of the Dog. Of hungry hungry. Of hungry hungry. Temple of the Dog, what in retrospect is a Seattle Grunge Supergroup featuring members of Soundgarden and future members of Pearl Jam. By the time this album, which was self-titled, by the way, came out, the sound people were calling grunge was starting to gather some serious momentum. Soundgarden was well into building their reputation with a new major label record deal. A group called Nirvana was getting some attention. A band called Alice in Chains had moved from being quasi-hair metalers to something more ragged. And Pearl Jam was ready with a debut album. And in the fall of 1991... It all came together. That's next. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part three of a multi-part series on the series of alt-rock of the 1990s. Grunge started showing up on the world's radars in the summer of 1991. It didn't arrive with an explosion of hype. It just kind of appeared and resolved itself into something massive. Three records formed the foundation of grunge. The first to hit the stores was 10 from Pearl Jam, released on August 27, 1991. It was a slow burner, took about a year to get up to speed, and it was not an immediate hit. But, when it finally gathered strength, it was unstoppable. The very same day Pearl Jam's 10 album was released, the first single of another big album came out. Nirvana's Nevermind is the most famous of the holy trinity of grunge albums. The single came out in August, the same day as the Pearl Jam record, with the album coming September 24th, 1991. Within just a few short weeks, it was selling 300,000 copies a week. And in January, it knocked Michael Jackson's Bad out of the number one spot on the Billboard charts, More than any other record, Nevermind, drove not only the rise of grunge, but of alternative music in general. Thanks to Nirvana, alternative music eventually became mainstream music. I don't think I need to go into that album again, do I? No, I, I didn't think so. The final third of the Holy Grunge Trinity was Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, which hit the stores on October 8th, 1991. This is what they've been working for since the middle 80s. If Pearl Jam brought hard rock to the party and Nirvana's contribution was their punk attitude, it was Soundgarden who brought the metal. Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger, Nirvana's Nevermind, and Pearl Jam's Ten. Three massive records from 1991. The growth of grunge into a worldwide phenomenon was thrust forward by the success of these three albums. But there was more to the rise of grunge than just a bunch of songs. It arrived at one of those perfect confluences of events and conditions involving art, economics, demographics, and social issues. And it all begins with Generation X. The sons and daughters of the baby boom. We talked about this on part one of the series. At the beginning of the '90s, Gen Xers found themselves in a rough situation. A recession created an unemployment problem and a crisis of confidence. There was the first Gulf War. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and was threatening to do more damage to the Middle East and the world. But a coalition of forces led by George Bush Sr. and the U.S. waded in and sorted things out, at the expense of a lot of young American men. The mood was dark and that called for music to reflect that, something heavier and angrier and more aggressive than the endless hair metal ballads and the pop music that we heard at the end of the 1980s. Gen X was also at the point in their lives when they were coming of age musically. A huge bulge of them were in that sweet spot age range, 15 to 25, the time in our lives when music seems to be one of the most defining things of our being. Gen X didn't care about what their parents or their older brothers and sisters were into. They hated all that late 80s music that featured one long parade of classic rock bands in the second acts of their careers. You know, lots of Van Halen and Aerosmith and Leonard Skinner and Elton John. They were just dinosaurs. They were not interested in the pop music that had dominated the latter half of the 80s. Or if they once were, they'd grown out of it. And again, they're not interested in hair metal, which had dominated rock for the better part of the last decade. Gen X wanted music of their own. Music made by their own people that dealt with their own issues and attitudes. And they let it be known that they valued authenticity, humbleness, and street cred. Normal stardom came to be something that had to be downplayed and avoided. Slacker culture, with its sense of apathetic egalitarianism, took over. It was supposed to be about the people, about the fans, and about real, honest music. And that was grunge in a nutshell. So, no wonder it took off. As we rolled through 1991, 1992, and 1993, grunge helped reshape mainstream rock. Bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden not only sold millions of records, but also provided a gateway drug to the world of alternative rock. This scene, filled with underdogs, off-the-grid performers, outliers, and weirdos, had existed in lockstep with mainstream rock for decades, but grunge punched a hole into this parallel universe, allowing everyone to see what was going on over there. The general public discovered that there was an amazing variety of artists and music that had always been there, but never had been really acknowledged. Many performers suddenly found themselves in bigger demand than they had ever dreamed. Meanwhile, record companies, always eager to identify and exploit new trends and tastes, started signing up and really marketing groups from the alternative side of town. Older groups, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and R.E.M., got caught in this updraft, much to their benefit. And so did brand-new groups who, although they weren't from the home of grunge in Seattle, sounded like they could be, and that was good enough. If you had guitars that were tuned low and your slacker heart seemed to be in the right place, you too could get a record deal, no matter where you came from. Stone Temple Pilots were from Los Angeles by way of San Diego. The Smashing Pumpkins were from Chicago. Silverchair was from Australia. And Sloan... They were from Halifax. Sloan originally pegged as Canada's answer to Nirvana, and for a short while, Halifax was considered to be Seattle East. Sounds kind of crazy now, but that's the kind of frenzy and saturation and dilution that we began to see as grunge expanded from its little corner of America to, uh, well, everywhere. It was pretty cool. And the side effects were rather interesting. We'll discuss that in a second. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Music scenes come and go all the time. Some are pretty faddish and don't leave much of a lasting impression. Others have a profound effect on the culture and that the echoes from that era reverberate for years, even decades. And that's what we saw with grunge. And when I say reverberations, I not only mean how the specific sound of grunge influenced rock, but how the scene itself altered other parts of the music universe. Consider the Britpop scene of the middle 1990s. That sound, that nationalistic celebration of British music heritage, was prompted in large part by grunge. There were certain people within the UK who were most disturbed by how popular American bands, with their flannel and detuned guitars, were becoming in Britain. Popularity coming at, they said, the expense of homegrown British artists. We'll get deeper into what happened there on the next show. Another side effect of grunge was its effect on alternative music in North America. Before Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden came along, the sound of alt-rock was all over the place. Okay, sure, there were lots of guitar bands, but there were also synth-based groups, singer-songwriters, industrial groups, electronic outfits, dancey bands. Grunge, though, swung things decidedly in the direction of big guitars. And while there still was a variety of sounds below the surface, the most public face, the most accepted face of alt-rock became guitar bands, and they became huge It wasn't long before alt-rock was no longer an alternative to anything. It got so big so fast that this part of the Gen X musical universe had become the mainstream. And this meant that guitars, bass, and drums ruled rock. But the way they were played was different. Guitars were tuned lower. You may have heard terms like drop-D tuning, which gave them a darker and dirtier feel. Drummers were hard-hitting and worked out new ways of filling holes with inventive and intricate rhythms. And people started playing the bass differently. The lines were often, I don't know, slinky and burbly. Now, I want you to listen to something. Listen to how Chris Novoselic's low end held Nirvana together. Go back and listen to some of those Alice in Chains records and hear how Mike Starr provided a cool foundation for everything. Ben Shepherd of Soundgarden practically played power chords on his bass sometime. Now wait, wait. Here's something that encapsulates everything I just talked about. Listen to the Smashing Pumpkins take everything, and I mean lower-tuned guitars, inventive drumming, and slinky burbly bass, and bring it all together in one song. I am one as you are three. Try to find Messiah in your city too. Your city too Try to look for something in your city too. Blue. Yeah, blue. While this extension of a formerly niche scene was very good for business. This caused an existential crisis amongst purists who began to question who and what was truly alternative and who and what wasn't. A major issue was the inclusion of Metallica on the 1996 Lollapalooza tour. While it was amazingly successful in terms of attendance and ticket sales, many of the early adopters of alternative, true alternative people, felt that Metallica and their fans didn't belong these original alternative fans began to lose interest and drift away into areas in which they felt more comfortable. This was the beginning of a massive fragmentation of what used to be a reasonably cohesive scene. When new metal came along a few years later, things were further polarized. And when file sharing began to take off in the late 1990s, thanks to programs like the original Napster, everyone could suddenly explore every facet of music for virtually no cost on their own. And after that, well, there was no hope of putting the old alternative nation back together. Besides, the Gen Xers who made grunge what it was grew up, got jobs, started families, and basically moved on. And so did the artists who made the scene possible. Kurt Cobain checked out in spectacular fashion. The Smashing Pumpkins began to have issues. Alice in Chains went AWOL and Soundgarden broke up. Meanwhile, Pearl Jam went to great lengths to distance themselves from the whole grunge thing that they started. They created their own little world, populated by some of the most loyal fans on the planet. And the music they began to make didn't sound much at all like what they used to make in those early days. Where are we today after grunge broke? Well, in some ways, grunge has become the new classic rock. The acts that were new back then are still being pushed today. Pearl Jam, still very much a going concern well into their third decade. Nirvana remains as popular as ever. Soundgarden reunited and played to solo at arenas, and then Chris Cornell died. We still have Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins in one form or another. Stone Temple Pilots limps along. Scott Wyland, of course, is no longer with us, but Stone Temple Pilots is. Allison Change has returned, albeit with a new singer. And Pearl Jam? They seem immortal. Yes, there is a constant supply of new bands, and new music, and new sounds. In fact, there's more music out there than ever before. And access to this music is easy and cheap, if not free. But because things are so fragmented, it can get confusing very fast. The problem I see is that the music industry has done a lousy job of creating new rock superstars. Because they've been distracted by file sharing, piracy, falling CD prices, falling revenues, and the move from CDs to digital, there's been little time devoted to creating a new generation of massive rock bands. Now think about it. Outside of Coldplay, Jack White, Gorillaz, and maybe Linkin Park, who else from the first decade of the 21st century can rank against the alt-rock giants of the 80s and 90s? It's just been much easier and much more cost-effective to mine the 90s again and again and again. Go back to the tried and true. New albums from old artists, reissues, box sets, reunions, another tour. This concerns me. A 15-year-old kid in 1992 could not get enough Nirvana. He couldn't care less about music that was 20 years old. Like Elvis, The Beatles, The Stones? That's old music. That meant nothing to this kid. Now look at today's 15-year-old. Why should a Nirvana song that's a quarter-century old matter to him? Or, wait, maybe, thanks to technology, we've entered a new ecumenical world where good music is good music regardless of age. At the height of the grunge days, it was all pretty tribal. On one side were the mainstream rockers and the other, the alternative kids. You were either in one group or the other. No changing teams. That's the way it was. Now, there are still tribal aspects to rock today, but it's not quite the same. It's perfectly acceptable to have the Smashing Pumpkins, the Beatles, Black Sabbath, and the coolest new indie band on the same playlist. And there's probably, no, definitely some hip-hop and pop in there, too. Or maybe I'm, I'm looking at this all wrong. Grunge is destined to endure like so many other sounds that came before it. Because, well, like I said, good music is good music, right? Back with a look ahead to the next show in this series on the 90s in just a second. More of the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I've already alluded to what part four of our series on the 1990s will be all about. It's going to be Britpop, the UK's answer to grunge. And just as grunge has had long-lasting influences on North American guitar rock, so has Britpop on indie rock in Britain. That whole story is coming up next time. Meanwhile, all these shows are being turned into podcasts, so you can binge listen at your leisure. They're available for free at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I can be found on my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Get the daily newsletter. It's good. And I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. See you next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.